0: I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you were hurting or helpless and someone came to your rescue. Well, if so, then you were a recipient of what God calls mercy. Because whenever a person experiences inconvenience or personal cost or even personal risk, to help another person they're engaging in merciful behavior you see mercy always involves a rescue and sometimes we need to be rescued from undeserved circumstances one well-known example of this is the parable of the good samaritan in chapter 10 of the book of luke It's a story that Jesus tells and in that story, there's a traveler who is beaten and robbed and he's left for dead by the side of the road. No one deserves to be treated like that. Well, thankfully, along comes a complete stranger who interrupts his own journey and he binds up the wounds of this victim and he takes him to an inn where he can rest and recover and he pays for his lodging and his food. It's a very costly rescue. Rescuing a victim from undeserved circumstances. And scripture describes that rescue as an act of mercy. And when one person rescues another person like that, oh, is that a tremendous blessing? Well, there's another expression of mercy in the Bible. It's the one we're going to focus on this morning, and it's when, we're recogni- when we are rescued from deserved consequences. Now, for, for example, if there's a judge and he's got a guilty person before him or her, and that judge passes sentence but then suspends the sentence, what's the judge doing? The judge is extending some mercy. And a judge often can do that because it's within his or her power to do so. And when a judge is merciful, obviously it's a tremendous blessing to a guilty person. So those two stories illustrate just some of the ways that we as human beings can act mercifully toward others. But our ability to be merciful is limited because there's one kind of mercy that only God can grant. And it's Our need as human beings to be rescued from our sinful condition. Sin is a problem we've caused. It results in all kinds of deserved consequences and we can't fix it on our own. We can't rescue ourselves from that situation. You see here's what happens if we're living without faith if we're living apart from God then we are in an excuse me we are in an active state of rebellion against our own creator and the consequences of that are huge on a practical level it means we have to navigate the complexities of life without the wisdom and counsel of God On a deeper level, it means that we live without the hope of spiritual forgiveness for the injuries that we've inflicted on ourselves and others, and we live without hope for what lies beyond the grave. And if we're living without faith and apart from God, then ultimately we cannot experience any spiritual joy or spiritual peace because we go through each day with a perpetually damaged soul. There's no way we can rescue ourselves from that condition. It's a rescue only God can perform. And here's what is so wonderful and so amazing. Our God loves to engage in exactly that kind of rescue. And why is that? It's because God is rich in mercy. God is just waiting to drench his mercy on the human beings that he made in his own image. We have the privilege of knowing a God who is rich in mercy. And that's the message of the opening section of chapter 2 of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people in the ancient city of Ephesus and these people had been pagan idol worshipers but they then responded to God's offer of mercy and they became followers of Jesus. As a result, as we saw last week, they're now part of the church of Jesus Christ. That's God's family. And it means that God views these forgiven sinners as his glorious inheritance. Their status with God has been transformed. And by the way, if that idea of us being God's glorious inheritance, if that doesn't make sense to you, I encourage you to go to our website listen to last week's message where I talk about that a little bit. So when we are forgiven, we become God's inheritance, we're part of his family, but we can't become arrogant about our new status and take God's love for granted. Paul wants his friends in Ephesus to keep their life in proper perspective and not get self righteous about who they are. And so he reminds them of their past so they will never forget what they have been rescued from. So let's dive in and look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and you were dead, boy, there's a strong word, (laughs) and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is a very dramatic way to refer to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind oh here's the beautiful part but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ wow now as we learned in chapter 1 One of the keys to understanding this book of Ephesians is to determine which group of people Paul is referring to when he uses different plural pronouns, such as you and we and us. Now here in chapter two he's distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles. And he wants these Gentile Christians in Ephesus, that's the you, to remember what their spiritual condition was before they became followers of Jesus. They were sinners who were enslaved to their own desires and were captured by the lure of their culture. Yet Paul is not putting them down because Jews like him, that's the we, also were enslaved by sin. Even though the Jews were God's chosen people, they were in bondage to the law and to their traditions and to the lusts of the flesh. So, everyone, both Jew and Gentile, that's the us, was in the same spiritual condition. You see, apart from Jesus, if we are not connected to God, to Him, then we're all spiritually dead. And Paul uses two very different words, sin and transgressions, to describe what it means to be spiritually dead. That word translated sins actually comes from archery. And it means to shoot at a target and miss, to be wide of the mark. And it's a vivid picture of a life that's off target. And when we miss the target, we're missing out on the richness of life that God has for us. And what's worse is that when we miss God's target, we're going to hit something else. And then often we're gonna cause great harm. And then we have the word transgressions, which describes a traveler who strays off the path. And it's another powerful picture of what happens when we're not aligned with God. We wander from the best route and we get ourselves off course and when that happens we can get lost and we can hurt ourselves and others. You see we can be physically and emotionally alive and yet still spiritually dead because our lives are off target and off course as a direct result of being separated from God and then we and those around us are subject to the harmful consequences of our sinful condition. And Satan, the great deceiver, loves to convince us that sin is just harmless fun and pleasure. But sin is never innocent, it's always destructive. It makes us spiritually dead. That's why Paul writes in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. And oh, is that true? Because sin kills us in so many different ways. For example, sin kills our innocence. That that was the worst worst consequence of the very first act of sin committed by our ancestors in the Garden of Eden. God formed human beings to be innocent without the knowledge of evil so that we could live a free and unencumbered life. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, human beings now understand evil. And we're drawn to it. And because of that, we take good things so often and we pervert them and misuse them. And here's just one very prominent modern-day example. Think of the Internet. Now, I don't know about you, but I love living in a technological age. I love the fact that I can Google something and a world of info is at my fingertips. I love email and, and, and all of these things that we have. But we know that the Internet is not just a repository Of useful information. You don't have to look very far very deep to realize that the internet is a repository of great moral filth. And why is that? Because we've lost our innocence and we took something good and we perverted it. Oh what a painful consequence of sin to have our innocence taken away. And then sin also kills our moral boundaries because we've lost our innocence. I I used to know a man, I won't call him a friend, he was more of an acquaintance, but but he entered into a life of shoplifting. He, He had been raised to know that stealing is wrong, but one time he was in a store and he really wanted one of these tech gadgets, and it was small enough to fit in his pocket. And so he grabbed it and stuck it in his pocket and with fear and trembling and anxiety got out of the store. He was scared to death that he'd get caught. But he got away with it. And because of the fear of that moment, he swore to himself, oh man, I'm never gonna take that risk again. I will never do that again. But he did. Because the second time was a whole lot easier once he'd crossed the boundary. And he started shoplifting, he did it again and again and again. And after about a dozen times, you know what he told me? I'm not afraid anymore. In fact, he had grown proud of his ability to steal. Now think about that. Think about that transformation from someone who believed that stealing was wrong to someone who was proud of his ability to steal. Why did that happen? Because he was following the wrong path and sin had killed his moral boundaries. He didn't have any guardrails on his life. Sin is always destructive. And you know what? If we are not careful the same can be true of us. Whether it is falling into a pattern of telling lies. Falling into a pattern of cheating and deception. Whether it's cheating on a test at school or cheating on our taxes. Each time we sin, we erode a bit more of our moral boundaries. And each time we do, we inflict another wound on our soul. Sin is deadly and it leads to death in so many ways. Sin also makes us spiritually blind. When we're living apart from God, we can feel as if we're truly free, as if we're in charge of our own destinies, but that's an illusion because there is so much of life that's beyond our control, and without the guiding influence of a loving God, we will miss the target, we will veer off the path, and we will indulge the sinful desires of our own nature. Verses 1, 2, and 3 make it abundantly clear that the idea of a free, unencumbered, self-directed life clearly is an illusion. Because we all follow a master, and the question is, who will we submit to? Will we submit to the Heavenly Father who loves us as His children and who always has our best interests at heart? Are we going to follow Satan who inhabits this world and infects our culture and inflames unhealthy desires within us? And here's what we need to grasp. If we're not aligned with God, then we will wittingly or unwittingly be aligned with the one who's the enemy of our souls. And he will keep causing us to veer off the path and miss God's target. As I was praying about this during the week and thinking about the problem of sin, I was reminded of something that one of my college professors once said. He said that the real mark of a human being is not that we're rational creatures, but that we are rationalizing creatures. (laughs) And I think that's painfully true because we can be good people who live mostly decent lives, yet we can still harbor all kinds of evil in our hearts and minds, which means at times we can act in ways that are unkind and unloving and ungracious and harmful to ourselves and others, and when we do, so often we find ways to rationalize our ungodly and inappropriate behavior. You ever said this? I I know what I did was wrong, but at least I'm not as bad as that person. Here's one I've heard a lot over the years. It's okay for me to take office supplies home from the office for my personal use because the company doesn't pay me very well. Interesting. Whatever the excuse, have you and I ever rationalized wrong behavior? Of course we have, which means we're not innocent. And so when we add it all up and look at the carnage that sin leaves in its wake, it's not a pretty picture. And then toward the end of that section that we just read, Paul talks about the spiritual consequences of sin and they're monumental. He writes that sinful, unforgiven people are children of wrath. Oh my goodness, that's a harsh statement. But it's true. In the Bible, the word wrath refers to God carrying out his justice. And because he's fair, everyone gets exactly what they deserve. But I don't want to get what I deserve. And I know you don't either. So what do we do about that? How do we escape the consequences of our sin? And here's the incredible answer. We don't escape it. We get rescued from it by the God who is rich in mercy. And God is predisposed to grant us mercy because he's not just our creator. He's also our heavenly father. And no father wants his children to head down the wrong path. And when we understand the parent-child relationship that we have with God, it puts a little different perspective, I believe, on sin because when we sin, we don't just break God's laws, we break the Father's heart. And that's why God's rich in mercy toward us. It's because he loves us so much. Even when we were in a state of sinful rebellion against him, God was not writing us off. He was looking for opportunities to rescue us. When you and I were spiritually dead, God the Father was eager to make us alive through Jesus. And only an awesome God could perform that kind of rescue. Only a loving God who is rich in mercy would want to rescue sinful people like us. And I know I've spent a fair amount of time talking about sin, way more than I usually do, and we're probably all ready to have the subject changed, (laughs) including me. But you see, we're never gonna fully appreciate our God until we realize the depth of our sin and how deeply the desire to be merciful is embedded in the nature of God. Several hundred years before Paul wrote here to the Ephesians, the prophet Micah wrote about this aspect of God's character in Micah chapter seven, verse 18, we find these words. I can never say them without getting choked up. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives iniquity? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Oh, thank you, God. That is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Because it reveals so much about the heart of our God. God does not find it delightful to carry out his judgment and justice. He does not delight in punishment. What God loves to do, what he delights to do, is to mercifully rescue human beings from the deserved consequences of our sin. And he does that when we repent and we put our trust in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have been so blessed by our God. He is incredibly rich in mercy and he has poured it out on us to rescue us from what we deserve. And I know we all understand that, but here's what happens. Over time, the human heart can get calloused. Over time, we start to take things for granted. And we can forget how things used to be before we were rescued and made alive through Jesus. And Paul does not want that to happen to his friends in Ephesus, which is why he writes these words here. And here's something important to realize. Everything we just read, everything Paul just said to the Ephesians, guess what? They already know it. They already know this stuff. Yet Paul writes it down here in black and white to ensure that they remember the past. Because when we remember the past, then we will live with grateful hearts. We'll live with a sense of thankful humility for God's rich mercy. The mercy that he has lavished on us. But God's mercy doesn't end there because he rescues us from our sinful past in order to give us the gift of an incredible future. You see, when we're made alive through Jesus, then we can rejoice at the future God has planned for us. Excuse me, let's look at what Paul writes next. Going back just a little bit to kept capture the thought here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And the first thing we need to notice here is the close relationship between mercy and grace and in the church we talk a lot about grace and not so much about mercy but it's vital to understand both because they're linked and they overlap yet they're distinct. God's mercy is an undeserved rescue. God's grace is an undeserved gift. God's mercy rescues us from the holy justice we deserve. And then he graciously gives us the gift of a new life through Jesus. And so mercy is the foundation upon which grace rests. Because of God's mercy, the past is addressed. Because of God's rich grace, our future is assured. It's a rich future with God. And as Paul says, for all the ages to come. And then here in verse 6, Paul does something really interesting. He links our future blessing with our current life in a very distinctive way. In verse 6 he writes that believers have been raised up with Jesus and seated in the heavenly realms. And he says that's a current reality. But think about that for just a minute. Paul's writing to the Ephesians who as they read it, they're alive, they're not dead, which means they're on earth and they're not in heaven. And yet Paul says, as you read this, seated there in Ephesus, you're seated in the heavenly places. What? How can you be alive on earth and also seated in heaven? What Paul is describing here is profound. And it's the difference between our physical condition and our spiritual condition position. What's our physical condition? We're here. (laughs) We're living life on planet Earth, and we are imperfect people striving to live by faith in this broken world. Our spiritual position, though, oh, that is radically, radically different. Because spiritually, it's as if we're already seated in heaven with God. God is telling us that he chooses to see us not as we are, but as we will be when we move from this life to the next. He sees you and me in heaven perfected as if it's already happened. Wow. Is that a rich blessing? That's our position with God. And then... When we die, and actually go to heaven, then our condition and our position will be the same and then we will bask in the riches of God's grace for all the ages to come. Life in heaven with God's family and with God forever. And Paul says, oh, it's going to be rich rich in kindness, rich in grace. And I want to talk about this just a little bit. Because we don't talk about heaven a whole lot. And and to a certain extent, that's because we don't know a lot about it. But God in Scripture gives us a few sneak previews. And what we do know is incredible. We know that heaven will be radiant and gorgeous. It's going to have streets paved with gold. We know that God will no longer be distant, but we will experience His presence continually. We will be with Him. We know that heaven will be a place where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more poverty, no more war, no more debilitating illnesses. No more aches and pains of growing older. I find myself wondering, gosh, in heaven, will I get to play sports like I did when I was 18 (laughs) and not hurt afterwards? I don't know. And here's one of the things that I love best about the life to come. God tells us that this season of eternity is going to begin in a very distinctive way. And you know how that is. It's going to begin with a party. The Bible tells us that when God gathers all of us together in heaven, the heavenly Father with all of his children, we're gonna celebrate with a huge banquet. There's gonna be this awesome, awesome feast. And if you have a tendency to think of God the Father as stern or distant or not fun-loving, I encourage you to get a fresh perspective. Because the Father is looking forward to welcoming us home and then having this huge festive party with all of His children. And here's what really touches my heart. And it's because of what Paul says here and of what Scripture also says elsewhere. Because of God's rich mercy and because of His rich grace, that future is assured. And you know what it means? It means that the seats at the heavenly banquet table are reserved and waiting for us. Think about that. They're reserved and waiting. Every seat at that table has a placard that says, reserved. Reserved for David and Ellen. Reserved for Robin. Reserved for Dave and Diane. Reserved for Cindy and for Peter. Reserved for every member of God's family. And is that a reason to celebrate? Absolutely. Why wouldn't we want to join the Heavenly Father in an incredible party as we get seated at our reserved places at his banqueting table? Oh my goodness. We get to rejoice in a rich future because our future is assured as God's children. And only a God who is lavish with His mercy and lavish with His grace would do that for us. And He wants us to rejoice in this assured future in order to provide a sharp contrast with our disordered and spiritually dead past. And when we know that the past has been cleaned up, and when we know that the future is secure then we truly can revel in the present. Let's look at the last part of this passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul now really wants to emphasize God's grace, which is laid upon the base of God's mercy. Because he wants to talk about the gracious gift of salvation. That after we've been rescued by God's mercy, the, the, the gracious gift of salvation makes us alive through Jesus and gives us the hope of eternity, for to, hope, of, hope for today and for eternity. And just as we don't deserve God's mercy, we don't deserve God's grace. We can't earn forgiveness. We don't earn our place in heaven. We simply choose to receive it by responding in faith to God's gracious love. And when we've done that, then we can revel in the joy of this gift each and every day. We can revel in the reality of who God is and the richness of life in relationship with him. But here's what's really tragic. Many religious systems and many religious ways of believing reject the magnificent gift of God's mercy and grace. Instead, they believe that we must try to make up for our own sinfulness on our own. And they think if we just do enough good stuff, then God will forgive us. And there's a name for that kind of thinking. It's called salvation by works. And that's what Paul actually is addressing here in verse 9. And in this context, a work is any action that we believe enables us to earn God's favor. For example, earlier I mentioned my acquaintance who had fallen into a life of shoplifting. Well, let's suppose that he wanted to change course. He could have decided, you know, I really want to earn God's forgiveness. So I'll stop stealing and I'll replace my stealing with some good deeds. Well, obviously, choosing not to be a thief is a good thing. And store owners would have appreciated the fact that he wasn't taking their stuff. But stopping stealing and replacing it with a good deed doesn't make things right with God. Because stealing is not just a sin against people, it's a sin against the Heavenly Father. And the way to be forgiven by God is to acknowledge the wrong we've done and to say, Oh God, have mercy on me, and He will. And yet, despite the clear message of scripture and the incredible gift of God, people keep trying to earn their way into heaven, and it was a problem back in the first century. Ancient Greek culture was full of that kind of thinking, which means the Ephesians, if they weren't careful, could be lured into false beliefs about God. And Paul doesn't want that to happen, which is why he addresses the issue. and It's why he emphasizes that forgiveness is a gift. And you know, if we think about it for more than 30 seconds, we realize how logical that is because mercy cannot be earned. Grace cannot be earned. Love cannot be earned. It's all a gift. So good works are not the way to a relationship with God. We get connected to God as we respond in faith to His rich mercy and grace. And then, once we're connected to Him, it should lead to good works. And why is that? Because when we embrace mercy and when we embrace grace, oh, it changes us. Look at the contrast between the beginning and the end of this passage. Let me read the first three verses. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the universal human condition before mercy, before grace. But then we come to verse 10. After we've embraced mercy and grace. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God prepares beforehand, that we should walk in them. Apart from Jesus, we're spiritually dead, so we keep missing God's target, we keep straying off God's course, but when we embrace God's rich mercy and grace, then we become the workmanship of God as He transforms us and makes us alive through Jesus. And when we've been made alive through Jesus, when we've been transformed like that, the most natural thing in the world then is to live a more Christ-like life. We will want to perform good works to enrich the lives of others. Good works that enrich our own lives with a greater sense of meaning and purpose. We will want to start following God's path and hitting God's target. And we're not going to do it out of a sense of of duty or obligation. We're going to do it out of joyful love. And we will revel in our lives as children of God doing the good works that bring so much pleasure to our Heavenly Father. I, I love this passage of Scripture because it encapsulates all of life. In these 10 verses, we learn that God's rich mercy and rich grace cover all of life. His mercy takes care of our past. His grace envelops us each day and propels us toward a rich and vibrant future. And all we have to do is just to receive it. To receive this incredibly rich gift that God has to offer. And I wanna talk about two simple ways to respond to this. If you've never taken your very first step of faith, I wanna invite you to consider doing that even this morning, to reach out to God and embrace His mercy. Ask Him to make you alive through Jesus so you can become His workmanship. If you wanna stop missing the target, and you want to be able to revel each day in a life with God, please come see me after the service. I would love to help you get started down the right path. God's path. A life full of rich mercy and rich grace. And then for those of us who already are followers of Jesus, let's remember never to take God's mercy and grace for granted. There's no room in God's family for pride or self-righteousness about our connection with Jesus. Instead, we need to respond with humility and with a heart full of grateful thanks. And when we mess up and miss the target from time to time, and we will remember Heavenly Father is ready, always ready to lavish his rich mercy on us. All we have to do is embrace it. When we fall short, all we need to do is go to God and sincerely acknowledge how we've blown it and say, Oh, Father, would you have mercy on me? And he will, because he is rich in mercy. And he just can't wait to lavish it on us. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, this is an amazing passage of Scripture. And it's an incredible thing that despite our our struggles and our, at times, willful disobedience, despite the fact that at times we ignore you, you delight to show mercy to us. Thank you, Father, for your incredibly great love, despite the fact that we can veer off the path so easily. And I pray for each of us here this morning, and for those of us who know you, I pray, Father, that if our experience of the Christian life has grown stale in any way, that if we've started to take mercy and grace for granted that this passage of your word would just reinvigorate us to be humble and grateful and to revel in who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, for those who are here this morning who may not know you, I pray that they might take a step of faith even this morning and embrace the gift of a new life in relationship with you. May you shower them with your mercy because of your great love. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.